When you open the Bible to read Scripture, you're not reading something that was written in the abstract. You're reading an epistle, in this case, a letter written by a real person named the Apostle John, writing to a real church. John pastored the church at Ephesus, was known and beloved across the ancient world of Christianity. I'll remind you, John died apparently was the only apostle, though they tried to kill him and martyr him, the same as all the others. John appears to be the only apostle who died of natural causes, a very old man. It was likely that at least 50 years have passed between the resurrection of Jesus and the writing of this letter. Christianity is not a new idea anymore. An entire generation, and with life expectancy being what it is in the ancient world, it might be that even three generations have now heard the gospel of Christ, and many people have come to Christ, and now many people are leaving. People are walking away, and one of the early reasons for that defection, for those people walking away from Christ, was there was a sect, a religious movement that rarely claims that name in our world in 2024, but whose ideas still predominate in the West a group called the Gnostics. And the term used to describe that movement tells you all that you need to know about them. They believe that they and they alone are possessors of secret spiritual knowledge, hence that strange word gnosis, which is related to our English word knowledge. They believed that Jesus had not come in the flesh, that at best it merely appeared that way. The reason they did that is because they believed that the spiritual world was pure and true and untouched by corruption and sin, and everything in the material world, including their physical bodies, was corrupt. And that led the Gnostics to divide really into two camps. One camp said the body is corrupt, so we have to beat it down. We have to be like the legendary monks of old and just keep our body in check with severe physical treatment. The other group said, no, the body is corrupt, but the spirit is untouched by anything the body does. The spirit lives on an entirely different level, so it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You are who you are, a pure spiritual being, and nothing your body does can change or affect your spirit. So do whatever you want with your body. Which of those two camps do you think was more popular in the ancient world? <laughs> that thought carries through to America in 2024. I'm a good person. Never mind what I do with my body. My body's just a vehicle. It's just a tent. That's not me. I'm, I'm okay. That's not my bad behavior. That's not who I, we say, that's not who I am. The real me, the true me, is a spirit buried deep inside me. So John begins his letter by saying, no, I, I physically saw Jesus. I heard him. I touched him with my own hands. Jesus really is the eternal Son of God, but he really was here on earth in a human nature. He was just like us. He was a human being. The Gnostics denied all of that, and apparently some in the Christian churches had begun to be infected by this teaching. And if you'll open your Bible with me, I'd just like to walk you through the passage even before I read it to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, 
We're now living in the last hour because Jesus is no longer here. We await His return. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, so now, he says in verse 18, many Antichrists have come. Those people left us, John says, because they never really were with us. But you have known Jesus. You have known the Holy One of God. And that God has anointed you. In other words, he uses an Old Testament term, anointing. He has set you aside. He has called you his own. He has called you into fellowship with him. And he has taught you things that are true. What you've believed about Jesus is not a lie. It's the actual truth. There are people among you who deny that Jesus actually came in the flesh. And in doing so, in denying the Son of God, they also deny God the Father, whom they claim to know. John says, keep believing what you've always been taught. If you keep the teaching you've always had, you'll enjoy both the Son and the Father who have promised you eternal life. I'm telling you these things because people among you are trying to deceive you, but the anointing, that gift that God gave you of His person and His teaching is real, and you don't need to hear from them. The truth is, he says, little children, we are awaiting the Lord's return, and we want to behave in a way that will not make us embarrassed when He comes back for us. He really is righteous, so we need to be righteous as well because we are actually God's children. We're not yet the people we will be, but we already really, truly, generously are God's children, and that, John says in the end, that should change his behavior. That should change our behavior because Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, really did appear in the real world to deal with real sin. He's come to take away sin, and He's come to destroy the work of the devil who practices sin. So here's how you can know the truth about those who really are with God and those who are not. You'll always be able to tell the truth of what they believe by the way they behave. And what I want you to do, John says, is abide, stick with Stay at home with Jesus and what you have always been taught about Him. Now, this letter that I just read to you, and I just kind of walk through in summary, I'm going to read you the actual Scripture. I just wanted to show you the lay of the land because John's writing is deep, and John's writing is sort of like a woven tapestry. Every bit of it is beautiful. But it repeats itself. It crosses back over itself. He picks up ideas that he mentioned several paragraphs earlier. And if you're not a careful, slow reader, and if you don't remember that the Gnostics are what caused him to write this letter in the first place, it's easy to get lost in all of his ideas and miss the collective truth is what he's saying. And what he's saying is this, Christians, I want you to stick with it. I want you to abide with Jesus. You've been taught the truth. People have come in among you to deceive you. Some have already abandoned you and walked away from Jesus and are threatening to take you with them. I want you to stick with the truth of what you've been taught, and that could not be any more timely than it was when the first people who received John's letter read it in the first place 
because we live, perhaps even more so than John, in a world flooded with spiritual ideas. Practically every message we're sent, even if it appears to be merely political, merely social, if it claims sometimes to be purely scientific, if you listen carefully to what people say and the implications of following their belief, you're going to realize that much of our discourse in 2024 in the United States is actually deeply spiritual. And my question in this is, a world in a world flooded with false spiritual teaching, how do we abide in Jesus? How do we take Jesus at His Word, who said on His way to the cross, and with John listening, way back in John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If anyone abides in me and I abide in him, that is the person who bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I'm your life. My job, Jesus would say, is to give you life. Your job is to stay close to me. How do we do that? I'm convinced that John wrote this section of his letter, which is by far, I think, the deepest and the hardest in the letter. He wrote it giving a practical answer to a local church that was beginning to suffer from defection and abandonment of the faith, apparently from even from some of its leaders, he tells us how to resist false spiritual teaching and stick with Jesus instead. That's the introduction. Read with me 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Let me read the actual Scripture to you. John says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And here John uses Old Testament language and concepts. What he's saying is Jesus has come to you and poured out on you knowledge. He's given you the truth. You have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. That's a response to the Gnostics. Those who claim to be super spiritual, who claim to be super knowledgeable, who knew things that were never taught by Jesus. John counters that saying, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Now he takes the gloves off and gets clear. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Did you notice John used one single word three times in that, in that one verse? He's interested in you sticking with it. He's interested in you abiding. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
This isn't just a competition of ideas and differing set of values. John says some of these spiritual teachers are actually trying to fool you. Here's how you counter that. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, speaking of Jesus, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here's our confidence. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Jesus was not an idea. He was not a mere apparition. He was God in the flesh, and John says one day we will see Him. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now he's going to come down to the acid test of true belief, which is righteous behavior. Watch. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But you know that he, referring to Jesus, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed, meaning God's life, this new life that God has granted. God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Long enough? Clear enough? Let me look back at the tapestry and see if I can find three main themes in it to support this single idea that what John wants you to do is abide. The Apostle John, who according to church history, this is not found in the Bible, but it is found in church history, in his very old age was eventually carried into the church and reminded people with the faltering voice of their obligation to love God and to love one another. You'll notice he ends that long, deep teaching by speaking of wickedness and righteousness, the works of the devil and the works of God's kids, and then he says at the very end, and love of your brother. In other words, as high and lofty as these ideas are, they always have a practical outcome. 
Spiritual ideas always manifest themselves eventually in actual, practical, visible human behavior. And what John wants them to do is to stick with the teaching that they've always been given. To not succumb to the lure of novelty. To not go after spiritually proud Gnostic people who claim to have entered a secret society where they and they alone knew the truth and had this amazing, very convenient discovery that no amount of sinful behavior with their bodies could touch their pure, true spirit. So live any way you want, do anything you want. You're untouched by sin anyway. No, John says, here's three things, three themes supporting this single idea of abiding in Christ. John says to his readers then and now that we need to do three things. Number one, he says, you have to resist false teachers and their enticing lifestyle. John says over and over again that his concern is with people who are teaching Christians things who are not true. Look at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to, what? Deceive you. I'm in chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. This isn't a mental game. In other words, there are people having conversations. There are conversions and deconversions apparently taking place in this church, and it's all due to the influence and the persuasiveness of people who are teaching falsely. John says, here are some characteristics of false teachers. Here's how you can know them. First of all, and most importantly, they eventually walk away from Christ and other Christians. 1 John 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. They eventually walk away from Jesus. Secondly, John says, they embrace a sinful lifestyle. Beginning in verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. All the way down to verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John says you can tell the truth of their beliefs by the way that they behave. And I need to talk to you about this in a few minutes and be very practical and very, be very clear about this because Christians tend to fall in one of two ditches. But the ditch that John is trying to keep them out of, he's trying to put a guardrail of behavior as a marker for them of what their, the true state of, of their spiritual belief actually is by telling them this, the way you act actually shows the true condition of your heart. Where might John have learned that, by the way? From Jesus, who said, you will know them by their fruit. We're not judges, but we can be fruit inspectors. If I'm walking through, if I'm walking through the countryside and I persistently see trees bearing apples, I can make a reasonable deduction that the trees with tons of apples on them are, can you guess? And if you told me, no, those are pecans, I would say, no, I, I don't believe you. I can see the fruit. Those are apples. I can take one off the tree, see it, taste it, verify, that's an apple. 
The Gnostics had a very enticing teaching, which is very, very attractive in the 21st century, just as much as it was in the first. You can do anything you want. Listen, Jesus, good guy. A good example to us all. The Son of God, the eternal God who made everything that exists, the one who made people so he also has the authority to evaluate them and judge them. No, 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 no. Good teacher, poet, philosopher, wise peasant, one scholar said, who got sideways with the Roman Empire and got himself killed. That's a scholarly take on Jesus, believe it or not. He talked too much and he got himself killed. Jesus is a warning against the trouble with the empire. It always kills innovative thinkers. Jesus more is Steve Jobs than savior of the world. Just someone who thought too differently. No, no. John says they embrace a sinful lifestyle. You know they don't know Jesus because Jesus, he told us in the last paragraph, came to take away sin. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So if the works of darkness continue, that can only mean that they never met a Savior. And Christians are very easily drawn into this, especially now in the 21st century, because one of the burdens I feel as a Bible teacher is, I only have you for about 45 minutes every Sunday. Some of you listen to podcasts on the way here, and you will listen to a different podcast on the way home. What kind of podcast will you listen to? I don't know, but I sure hope it's a good one. Because podcasts, YouTube, and TikTok are discipling Christians more persuasively than anything any present Christian teacher is doing. So let me warn you against this mindset. It says this. Regarding a, Christ, a false teacher, someone who does not embrace Christ, okay, but he has a lot of other good things to say. Please be careful with that because spirituality is caught just as well as it is taught. There are so many well-produced things on YouTube, so many incredibly well-made podcasts that invite you to put your Christianity and your belief in Christ aside and embrace a lifestyle, a way of looking at the world. It's especially packaged as something aesthetically pleasing and enormously successful in this world. Be careful with that, lest, nothing, uh, lest that teaching that does not explicitly draw Christ make you put Jesus in second place. A very specific warning that John would have for us is this. If you are comfortable with sin, John would tell you, please consider that you may not actually know Jesus at all. Look, please, with me in chapter 3, verse 4. And notice the words. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Speaking of Jesus, John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The verb matters. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep in sinning because he has been born of God. Bottom line, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You can go off the road by going in a ditch on either side. Let me tell you about both, and especially the one that John is warning about. One ditch is this, your behavior can save you. And if you ever sin again, that means you don't know Jesus at all. That's not what John is saying. That's not what I'm saying. There are certain Christian churches and some cults of Christianity that hold personal holiness in such a high position that they torment people with this idea. If you ever sin or struggle with a besetting sin, it can only mean that you don't know Christ at all. Such Christians live chronically fearful and worried that every instance of sin in their lives is a sure indication that they don't actually know Jesus. You ever struggled worrying about your salvation? You ever asked yourself, if I really knew Christ, I wouldn't be acting this way? That's a good question to ask, but if you make your behavior the standard of whether you actually know Christ, and that means that any instance of sin denies the presence of Christ in your life, you'll never have a day of peace again in your life. I know that John is not advocating sinful, sinlessness because look in 1 John chapter 1. Very important that you turn with me. Look in 1 John chapter 1 and look in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, what's he say? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a what? A liar and his word is not in us. So John is not talking about sinlessness. He's talking about trajectory. He's talking about whether you struggle with sin. He's talking about what separates Christians from Gnostics, whether sin makes you feel comfortable and at ease or you struggle against it, whether you embrace it. One guardrail that I have to put in place is this. Your behavior will never save you. John says as much. Jesus appeared to take away sin. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Only he can do it. John's point is, if you really know the sinless one, if you have really surrendered to the one who takes away sin, if you have truly surrendered to the one who takes sin away and destroys the work of the devil, your life will increasingly look like his. You will begin more and more to practice righteousness. So I don't want you to leave with a false sense of religious duty that your behavior has to be good enough to save you. It can't. Only Jesus can do that. Years ago, I was just a staff cub at this church, but we had a very famous evangelist come, and before he arrived, a friend of mine who he, whose church he had visited told me exactly how it was going to go, and I didn't believe him. And here was the, here was the prediction. He said, he's going to preach, and every single person in your church is going to come forward to get saved. You're going to have deacons down there. You might have some staff come forward to be saved. It's going to be unbelievable. The pews are going to empty. And I said, 
We're not that kind of church. It's not going to happen here. Because we were very reserved. Still, you heard it this morning. We're still a pretty reserved church. We were really reserved back then. Well, sure enough, he preached a very persuasive, emotionally laden sermon. And when he started what they used to call an altar call, there were probably three people left sitting in the chairs. The entire congregation came forward. Some of the godliest, most Christ-like people I had ever known were down in front, apparently believing after one sermon that they had never known Christ at all. Really shook me. So I went home and thought about it, and I think I figured it out. Here was the question he asked that got everybody forward. Listen to it. He said, if you died right now living the way you're living, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? And then he said, 1% doubt is 100% lost. If you have even 1% of doubt, you need, you're on your way to hell, you need to get up here and make it right. Well, the problem is in the question. If you died right now living the way you're living, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? You know who can answer that question in the affirmative? Only Jesus. Thank God the gospel announces that the gospel has never been at any moment about the way I live so that I can be saved. The announcement of the gospel is the way that Jesus lived in order to save me. So please don't go home with a burden from this passage that any appearance of sin in your life indicates that you have no life in Christ at all. That's one guardrail. What's the other? I once prayed a prayer... So now I do whatever I please. That leads to false conversion. That leads to false assurance. That leads to people who are actually practicing sin, embracing it, comfortable, with no life change at all. The only thing they can point to in their spiritual experience is that many years ago, they heard a Bible message and they gave intellectual agreement to it, and somebody led them through a prayer, and I did that, so I know I'm going on to heaven. To such people, John would shout, it looks to me like you're practicing sinfulness. It looks like you're a lawless person. It looks to me like you've never known the one who came to take away sin and destroy the work of the devil. So, if you embrace sin and are not troubled by it except on this brief slice of time that you're in church, I'm pleading with you in the name of Jesus, in your case, please consider that you may not know Christ at all, that you may merely have adopted a religious habit that will do you no good. Only Christ can save you. That's the first part of John's teaching. We must resist false teachers and their enticing lifestyle. Second, and we'll move much faster. John wants you to know that the most important thing regarding teachers and their false teachings is that they deny Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Look in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Look in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
If you want to be spiritually acceptable in 21st century Western, the Western world, all you have to do is say Jesus was a great teacher. He was not the Son of God. He did not rise from the dead. He is not unique. He is one of many good paths. That's acceptable. They'll let you into the interfaith prayer breakfast and welcome you with open arms. They'll allow you to speak in any setting as long as you say Jesus as one of, not what John is saying, Jesus the one and only. Second teaching, second thing that John says we have to do to abide in Christ, to stick with Jesus. Number two, after rejecting false teaching, you have to let the teaching of Jesus abide in you. What Jesus has told you about himself is very real and very much alive, and you just have to listen to it. Look in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, and again, that's that Old Testament practice of setting someone aside, signaling to them that they belong, that they're set aside to God, that they're commissioned for God's service, the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. Now, verse 27 kind of cancels my job, right? Look carefully at the first sentence in verse 27. The anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. See that? So what am I doing? Every once in a while, I'll meet someone, and they ask me what I do for work, and I say, I'm a pastor, and they say, well, I don't believe in pastors. It's amazing what people are willing to say to you if uh, <laughs> you give them a little confidence to, to be themselves. And they'll quote 1 John 2, verse 27, you have no need that anyone should teach you. They go, you're, you're out of a job, pastor. Well, okay. Now, why would John say that? Well, I know he doesn't mean it literally and absolutely, and here's how I know that. What's John doing when he writes this? He's teaching them. So what does he mean? What he's doing is contrasting the false teaching of the Gnostics that denies that Jesus is the Son of God, and in doing so denies not only the Son, but also the Father. John is telling them, listen, the Holy One of God, verse 26, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. John is telling them, you already have knowledge. You really have been taught the truth. You don't need these guys and their super secret squirrel knowledge to change everything you've ever been taught. They don't know the truth and their lifestyles prove it. John himself is a teacher. The apostles are teachers. John did an enormous amount of writing in the New Testament in order to teach. We're told by church history that, when, again, when John was in his old age, he wanted so badly to communicate a message to the church he pastored, he had a man carry him in so he could keep talking to them. What does this mean? Well, it's sort of like this. I raised two boys along with my wife who did 
an amazing amount of work. It was a real blessing to our two sons. And my boys were all boy in a very characteristic boyish, tending toward manhood, I hope they don't kill themselves kind of way. And they would take an interest in all kinds of things when we were out in public, sometimes in things that were literally trash. And when they wanted to go into whatever unpleasant, foul-smelling thing we found at the park there to amuse themselves further, I would say something like that, you don't need that. And what I meant was, nobody needs that. You shouldn't have anything to do with that. That's what John is saying here. His point is this. The teaching of Jesus that you receive from the Holy Spirit, John says, is true, and it's real, and it's sufficient. You know enough. You've been given knowledge. God himself has anointed you and taught you. You have no need of these self-appointed teachers. Here's something to take to the bank about false teaching. False spiritual teaching often looks like novelty and secrecy and elitism. It's something that they haven't heard before that nobody else seems to know and that puts them on a higher level. Dealing with this massive passage has been kind of painful for me all week because it brought me back memories of a lady and her husband in our church many years ago, who I still love and will always hold in my heart, who walked away from Christ in a pretty decisive way. Before they had walked away from Christ and Christians, the woman sat in my office and very excitedly told me that she had been meeting with someone who was teaching her the Bible, and she said, he's teaching me things I never knew. And my pastoral sense is tingled. And this is more by way of confession and regret than anything else in the world. I nearly said, what sort of things? But I relied on long friendship and a deep knowledge of who I thought they were, and I let it pass. I said, good for you. I'm glad you're growing in the Lord. They weren't growing in the Lord. They were actually being pulled away from the Son and ended up eventually denying both the Son and, according to John, the Father. What, was, what did that look like? It looked like novelty. It looked like secrecy. It looked like elitism. It put them on a spiritual level that no one in our church had. They had to leave here and every other Christian church I've ever known because they learned something that in their mind was new. It wasn't new. It was actually a very, very old idea. And the worst thing about it was, it wasn't true. John would tell you that if you stick with Jesus now, it will make you confident at his return. Look at verse 28. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus is real. He's quite real. Just as he once appeared in the flesh, he will return again. He is coming, not in this in his, second, in his second coming, he's not coming to save. He's coming to evaluate and to judge. And John says, live in such a way that when he comes for you, you won't be embarrassed. You ever have your parents go away when you were a teenager and come back earlier than they said they would? Ever tr try to do two days of cleaning in the three minutes you had between the time you heard their car and the front door open? 
That's what John's warning about here. He wants you to be expecting the Lord with confidence that your life is open to inspection, that you've loved the truth, you've walked with Him, and you're more like Jesus than you were the day you met Him. Because John's warning is what people really believe will eventually show up in the way that they behave. That's the last paragraph. And I end really with the center of this tapestry and, in my view, the most beautiful part of it. John says, number one, reject false teachers. Number two, embrace the teaching that you were always given. And number three, and most comfortingly, rest in your Father's deep and faithful love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Jesus really has done that. He really does take away sin. He really does anoint people. He really does move people from their old life into the family of God. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 is a jewel in the Bible. Would you stand with me? I'd like us to read it together before we go home. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the Greek language that John uses here invites his readers to look into something, to behold a great idea to ponder, to study, to stop on, reflect on a great truth. Read it with me, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. How do we stick with Jesus? We stick with Jesus by embracing His truth instead of all the antichrist ideas. The ideas that try to replace Him, the ideas that try to oppose Him, we reject that false teaching and we reject the sinful lifestyle that always eventually is seen to be with it. Let's pray together. I've tried to give you neither false assurance nor false fear. I want you in closing, Christian, to carefully consider whether you really are of Christ. If you are, it'll look like love for Him, which results in love for other people. It'll look like struggling against sin even when you fall into it. It'll look like going to your advocate and trusting that only Jesus can save you and only Jesus can forgive you even now. It won't look like embracing your old life, being comfortable in the things he saved you from. So I'm just inviting you either to take great comfort in the Father's love and rest in it, or if your actual day-to-day -day behavior gives you serious concerns about whether you really know the Savior, to call out to him and ask him for mercy right now. Jesus, only you can do it. And as we conclude this service, I pray that you would speak the truth to every heart, that you would show the reality of what people actually know and believe. If anyone here needs you as Savior, I pray they would take you at your word right now and be saved. And for those who are troubled by a sensitive conscience, Lord, but really are your children, comfort them, comfort us.
with the knowledge of your great love that you call us your own children. I pray this in Jesus' name and Cross Point says,